May mercy and grace and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from his Son, his only Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. They're quite popular. They happen on the white sands of Florida beaches. They happen on the rocky shores of Lake Michigan. They happen at ranches up in the hill country. They happen down on the river walk in our fair city, San Antonio. And destination weddings will almost always include something to eat. It may be simple snacks or sandwiches and cupcakes and sparkling waters, but usually a dinner, a banquet, a feast, maybe rich foods and well-aged wines. We shouldn't be surprised that Scripture would use images, that our Lord would use these images to describe salvation to us. So may the Holy Spirit give us expectant hearts, attentive ears, that we may discover the good news both in Isaiah and in Matthew. Good news revealed when we see that a destination wedding and a feast are our salvation. People God dearly loves. Isaiah writes over 700 years before Jesus is born. And Jesus, who by his miracles and parables and teachings reveals himself as the promised Messiah, the Savior for all. And as we heard last Sunday, Matthew 22 is another parable spoken during Holy Week. The final events of Jesus' mission are unfolding. His betrayal and arrest and death and resurrection are only days away. In today's gospel, Jesus teaches in this way. The kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, promised and enacted, is like a king who hosts a wedding feast for his son. Guests are invited, probably months ahead, certainly weeks before, to be part of the celebration. And now the day has come, now it's time, and he sends out servants to summon those who have received an invitation. And they don't respond. So he sends out more servants, and they announce, everything is prepared, the steaks are on the grill, the wine is ready to be poured, the musicians are tuning their instruments. Come be my guests at my son's wedding feast. Too many ignored this heads up. One went back to his farm. Another had business matters to take care of. Others did even worse. They were like the wicked tenants in last Sunday's parable. They seized and abused and even killed the servant messengers. The king responds with rightful rage. He sends his his soldiers to punish the murderers and to burn their city. And this is a parenthetical comment. This parable is not a prediction about events now happening in Israel and Gaza, but the parallels are interesting to say the least. Back to Matthew 22. The king sends out more servants with these orders. The first invited were not worthy, so go out into the roads and invite others. Find as many as you can. Invite them to share in the joy of my son's wedding feast. The servants do just that. Soon the hall is filled. The feast is underway. But the king sees one of the guests 
who is not wearing a wedding garment. He's not naked. He's just not properly clothed. If it happened now, it would be something like this. He's wearing cut-off shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. And everyone else is in a tuxedo or a fashionable gown. Friend, the king says, how did you get inside the banquet hall dressed like this? But the man is speechless, no excuses, no explanation. So the king orders him to be thrown out of the celebration, which leads to the final words of Jesus. Many are called, few are chosen. Let's deal with this last part of the episode first. Did the man crash the wedding feast without an invitation? No, not really. What about that surprise in verse 10, where both bad and good are summoned from the roadsides? Or is the king still mad about how the first invited guest dishonored his family and shamed his son by ignoring the invitation and treating his servants so harshly? Here is the key to this parable. Those who reject the king's feast are not worthy. They are not worthy because they dishonor his gracious invitation. And the man who comes inside the banquet hall improperly clothed does the same thing. He is not worthy because he deliberately shames and dishonors both the king and his son. He shows up, but he still rejects the king's goodness. Yes, many are called. And those called are not unworthy because they are bad. Bad and good are both summoned from the roadsides, but nor are they worthy because they are good. They are worthy because they rejoice to be guests at a feast they never earned nor deserved. They are guests of grace. To understand how this parable shows God at work restoring his reign among people, we need to go back to Isaiah 25, today's Old Testament reading. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, mountains are one of the keys to reading Holy Scripture. Look for mountains and look at what God does on or through those mountains. The ark lands on Mount Ararat after the great flood. Abraham climbs Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, preparing for a sacrifice. God gathers his people around Mount Sinai as part of their exodus out of Egypt. Moses sees the promised land from a distance from Mount Abel, but he's not allowed to enter it. Elijah challenges the false prophets of Baal on the Carmel Ridge of mountains and then runs all the way south to Mount Horeb and hides himself in a cave. Those are just some of the Old Testament stories, and there are plenty more involving Jesus. I'm reminding you of that so that I can point you to the words God speaks to and through his prophet Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. There's a destination. There's a mountain. 
there's a destination wedding on that mountain. For on this mountain, Yahweh will swallow up the pall, the darkness which covers his people, the veil that hides his redeemed from the nations and that hides God from them. But the veil is torn open. God is made incarnate and we learn that it is not his judgment, his stern judgment, but his abundant grace that is how he acts. And he will swallow up forever death. He will swallow it up forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face, tears of grief, tears of sorrow, tears of fear, tears of loneliness. And he will remove the reproach, the shame that hangs over us. The promise of salvation points to a mountain. And that mountain points to Jesus. And the parable of a wedding feast points to the son who becomes the bridegroom of his church for the new and eternal Israel is Jesus' wife. Jesus will and must climb mountains to be tempted, to pray, to teach, to be transfigured, to commission, to ascend. But above all, Jesus will and must climb a mountain to suffer and to die. It is not a high mountain, but it is a huge mountain. Jesus climbs Golgotha with the wood of the sacrifice on his own shoulders. And that mountain, stark and barren, becomes rich and green and fruitful. For it will be said by the redeemed on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. And there's not only a mountain, there is a meal, a meal of rich food, rich food, but a mystery that our Savior gives to us in, with, and under bread and wine, his true body and his true blood, broken and poured out to win the forgiveness of our sins. Now, today, our Lord serves his supper at this altar, but this sacramental meal is a foretaste of the feast to come, for we are invited by the King's grace to be guests at the unending marriage supper of the Lamb, his very own risen and exalted Son. And we will be clothed clothed with the wedding garment which the bride of Christ gives us in holy baptism. For our robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are, as the hymn phrases it, clothed in his righteousness alone, redeemed to stand before his throne. Are we worthy of these gifts? No. Are we worthy of this invitation? Not at all. But we are guests by God's mercy and grace. We are welcomed and embraced by his perfect and endless love. And this is our song. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.